Got a lot of different directions we could go this morning, but we'll figure out where we need to land with the ministry of God's Word. Always plenty of things to uh, teach, instruct, things to swing at, things to water, things to uproot. That's why we come to church. One of the jobs of the minister, according to Jeremiah, is to pull down and tear out and root out and then to plant and water. and Basically, you tear bad things out, put good things in its place. And that's what our job is to do as Christians. We're always to walk in self-judgment. We're always to walk in self-evaluation. Corinthians tells us to judge ourselves. Let us evaluate ourselves uh, that we'd not be judged with the earth, that we'd not be partakers of the Lord's body unworthily. Judgment is a major New Testament doctrine. Now, we have a modern heresy that says God doesn't judge anything, and we shouldn't judge anything. That's a heresy that's coming out of the New Age psychological movement of the 50s and 60s. Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, said in 1 Corinthians 2, that he that's spiritual judges all things, that he himself is judge of no man. Jesus Christ said, judge nothing before the time, but to judge righteous judgment. Jesus Christ also told us to judge them by their fruit. So we have every right to judge people by their fruit. All right? And so if we can't judge, well, then we can't be righteous Christians. We can't call right, right, and wrong, wrong. If we can't judge, well, then what we can't do is tell our children that's right and that's wrong. If we can't judge, we, we can't even tell the time because we've got to be able to judge when it's half past the hour, when we're late, when we're on time. So there's this real allergy to judgment right now, mostly because the world is lawless. And we've also been taught in the last 25 or 30 years that our feelings are king, and there's nothing more sacred than my feelings. And you hurt me. That hurt. I'm sorry, you're a sissy. Well, that hurt too. Well, quit being a double sissy. (laughs) Really, we've gotten so soft as a society, everything's about our feelings. And when you study the Gospels of the Lord Jesus, devoid of 1960s psychology and theology, you can see that the Lord Jesus was really harsh on his people. And he gave Israel three and a half years, and then he said, I'm done with you. And he wept over them and said, if you could only see and understand the hour of your visitation, but you missed missed it. If you could only know what was yours, and you've missed it. He gave his hometown of Nazareth one 20-minute sermon, and his preaching was so hard they tried to kill him. Now think about how hard a message that is when you're in your hometown, and there's your aunts and your uncles, and there's your childhood friend, There's the guy you used to do carpentry with, and they're excited in the first five minutes of your message. And before the message is over, that whole church congregation stands to their feet. You didn't ask them to. It wasn't for an altar call. It was to grab you and throw you off the high place of the cliff out the back side of the synagogue. That's a hard message. Today's modern American preacher has never been threatened. They're too busy trying to be a household name like Joel Osteen. They're trying to be TBN. They're trying to win friends and influence people. These people haven't been threatened for the preaching of the gospel. Our job is to preach this word so hard people are confronted with the reality. Our job is to tell uh, modern people, repent. Our job is to tell opinionated people, your opinion doesn't matter. Our job is to preach this word with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and make, present it before people. You have a decision to make. You either go with Christ or you go to hell. Preachers don't even want to tell their congregation they're going to hell anymore. Preachers don't want to tell the fat Jezebel in their church, you're a spiritual whore. You can't even control spoons. Why are you trying to control your husband? 
You can't even control your attitude or your opinion. Why are you trying to control the preacher? Nobody wants to rock the boat anymore. Preachers don't even want to tell folks, dress a little nicer. You look like a slob. This is the house of God. Would you judge this dress this way for court? Do you dress this way for a marriage, a wedding? You dress it like this for a funeral? If you have better, give better. Come on. We're dealing with God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're just trying to I don't know, get hearts and likes like on Instagram. I think if any church can go to heaven with hearts and likes on their Instagram page, they probably denied Christ somewhere along the way. I think before this is all said and done, we ought to have our website shut down by the you know, technocracy. You can tell you're doing it right when, the, when Facebook wants to shut your page down. You can tell you're doing it right when the community wants to shut your page down. So we've got a real problem on our hands. It's that we're a weak society. The church is just as weak as the world around them. One of the few good things Martin Luther King, the serial adulterer, ever said was that the church is supposed to be a thermostat. Remember that serial adulterer? Why are you quiet on me? Would you want a serial adulterer to pastor your church? I, I deny the fact that people try to call him a prophet. He did great civil rights things, but he was no man of God. Let's be very clear on that. When you are known, even by your supporters, for sleeping around on your wife with lots of women, you're no holy man of God. But one of the few good things I ever heard him say, and I don't know if that offends you, quit worshiping your favorite color. One of the few good things I ever heard him say is that the church should be a thermostat. We regulate society. But he said, we're not a thermostat, we're a thermometer. The church just shows you what society's doing. And that's a disgrace. We should not be the thermometer. We should be a thermostat. And as the church increases its temperature, society has to warm up for God too. And if it gets too hot in the church, the world should be uncomfortable. But if the world is comfortable coming to our services, the world is comfortable, if the world likes us, if the lesbians, like in Houston, can have Joel Osteen sit on their platform and inaugurate them as mayor, we got a real problem in the church. And when the lesbian mayor of Houston went after every preacher's sermon, she didn't ask for Joel's. So we know who the hireling is. So there's a problem when the church doesn't want to be the church. We just want to be this social club. We want to make people feel good and feel comfortable. When eternity's coming quickly, it's coming like a freight train, and it's going to be forever. That's why it's called eternity. And we are Christians, if I have to remind you, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Amen. And he is the ultimate divider. He promised to divide our homes in asunder. He would divide children from their mother, sons from their father. He said, even your own household will rise up against you, and they'll deliver you to the council to be murdered. And then he said, and they'll think they're doing God a favor. So we're, we got to stop this patty cake game. we got to stop being so easily offended. And they didn't tweet me back or text me back or they didn't reply to me or they didn't say hi to me or, or whatever. You grow up. You, you guys look like you all have oldness on you, so this isn't middle school anymore. So quit acting like it. I got offended. I'm going to take my toys and go home. I'm going to go to the secret church where they have a coffee bar in the foyer. Purple lights and nightclub vibe. I'm going to go there where they've marketed to my carnality. No, no, we, we press in. Amen. 
Hebrews says we press into the saving of our soul. Here's how you can tell when you're carnal. You get offended easily. Yeah. I like what uh, one of my friends, I said at the other service, but they recently said, uh, honor doesn't get offended easily. When you honor the things of God, you don't get offended. When you honor the football team and you want to be on the football team, you'll let that coach cuss you and your mother. And you'll, you'll say, yes, sir, I'll do better. Yeah, yeah, my mama agrees. I know you called her a blankety blank, but yeah, she agrees. I, I could do better. When you honor the team and you want to be on the team, you'll take a lot. And the modern American Christian doesn't honor anything but self. And Jesus Christ said, if I honor myself, my honor's nothing. Therefore, that means most Christians are about nothing. So when you really honor the things of God, you'll say, Lord, correct me, instruct me, rebuke me, fillet me alive. Show me where I'm wicked. Show me my excuses. Show me my blind spots. Show me where I'm reprobate. Show me where I'm prideful. Show me where I'm a, a Pentecostal nut job. Show me where I'm arrogant. Show me where I just don't have a clue. What I'm slow. I'm dense. I'm an idiot. Show me, Lord, because I don't want to be this way. Anybody that wants to get the gold medal just says, just show me where I stink and I'll get better. Our athletes pay people a lot of money to verbally abuse them. And it's called training. And the church, man, we're begging folks to come and we've all but kicked Christ out that we might gain a bunch of pagans. I'm really concerned for any church in America that runs over five or 600. What did you do to get so many people? What have you done to draw that big of a crowd? And what is the strength of your average believer? Can they lead a Bible study? Can they lead a prayer service? Have they ever won anybody to Christ, period, much less this year? Have they even shared their faith? Are they even a tither? You're running a thousand. Yeah, you. What's the strength of the average believer in that church? Because you're going to answer to God for what you did with all those goats you collected. Oh, yeah, the grass is green over there. It's because there's so much crap. There's more flesh there than at Weight Watchers. They worship at the altar of Sunday syrup. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know. I don't know who brought the attitude this morning. We'll make sure you washed up before we're done here. <laughs> I like this kind of preaching. It fires me up. Just keep bringing your attitude. I'll just swat it down all day long. It makes me stronger. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 is where we left off three weeks ago before we took two side tangents. But don't worry. I'll come back and slap you a little bit before we're done this morning because I got a few things to say. Ephesians chapter 2, we've been working line upon line through Ephesians. This is the most mature of Paul's churches in that season. Sadly enough, the Ephesus church doesn't exist anymore. didn't exist about 150 years after Christ was ascended. It was gone. It's not the will of God for a church to be established and then be gone in 100 years or 200 years. Most of our modern explosive seeker churches will be gone within the next generation. They're already shutting down left and right. COVID wiped out a lot of them. COVID's really proven what's, what we're made out of. I was talking to Pastor Ingolf from Germany the other day, and uh, we were talking about the condition of the German church. And he said, we had a famous Jewish author here who said in the 60s or 70s, he said, television makes smart people smarter and dumb people dumber. And then Pastor Ingolf said, and I would say COVID has done the same for the church. It has made strong Christians stronger and weak Christians weaker. 
it really has just shown what churches were made of. And I really fear for the churches that lost 30 and 40 and 50% of their congregation because it means they weren't disciples to begin with. So what kind of church do you have when you lost half your congregation through COVID? If they were disciples, they'd have stuck around and pressed in a little further. Now, I understand if you lost some to death, have mercy and may God comfort you. But you didn't lose half your church to death. You lost half your church to carnality, sensuality, convenience. And first they went to streaming, and then they went to streaming once a week, and then they went to streaming once every two weeks, and then they just went to nothing. Jesus said, if I walk with God, I will have fruit, and my fruit will abound and remain. I want fruit that remains. Ephesians chapter 2, we're looking at uh, the conditions of a strong church. The Ephesian epistle has a lot of advanced, mature doctrine in it. It's not like the Corinthian epistles, where the Corinthian epistles are full of so many rebukes because that was Paul's most carnal church. Number two would probably be the Galatian church, very immature, a lot of uh, rebukes, and he keeps asking, he keeps telling them, you guys are stupid. Oh, you stupid Galatians. Oh, you morons. Who bewitched you? You did run well. Who did hinder you? And it's always a who. It's always somebody you buddy-buddy with or let in your home. Amen. We forget that people, Dr. Barclay says, the devil can't always get to you, but he can always get to one of your friends. And that's why you're very careful who you let in your home or who you keep in your home. Amen. Amen. Just like you guard what's on the television, you guard who sleeps in that bed. Amen. And there's nothing that says you have to have somebody in your house. Man, I love the peace that we have in our home, and our children love to climb on us and sit on the couch, and I would not bring anybody in to cost me that. It's not my job to save everybody. I witness and then walk away. That's my job. There might be a grace on some people occasionally to host and maybe be foster parents. I get that. But you don't ever bring the plague into your home. No. You're going to answer to God for your family, not everybody else's family. Ephesians 2, we left off three weeks ago with verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let's pick up there as we're going through line upon line and exegeting the epistle for as long as the Lord will let us. We understand this, this is the foundation of the uh, Reformation, that we're saved by grace. We're not saved through Catholic rites, and we understand Martin Luther use this as a host scripture or a keynote scripture to say we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved through the church. We're saved and we become part of the church. We're saved by grace, not indulgences. We're saved by grace, not through communion rites. We're saved by grace through faith. Verse 9 says, not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't work to get saved. We understand that. But my pastor says we work because we are saved. And I like that nuance. If you're born again and you're thankful for it, it should be noticed in how you serve Jesus Christ. If you're truly born again, you want to tell somebody else. Even if you're fearful to, you still want to. Fear might be overriding you, but you think, man, what I've got, I know my coworker needs, Lord, I don't know, I don't know how to tell them. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I know my neighbor needs it. I see them. They're always mad. I can hear them yelling across the street. They need what we have. I don't know how to tell them. But the point is, at least you want to share it with them. If you're truly born again, there's a compulsion in you to want to work to build this kingdom that was established by somebody before you so that you could come and get saved. We're now a debtor to preach this gospel, to live for it, to win as many people to Christ as we possibly can. And I fear for some of you that your church attendance is as weak and flimsy as it is. I was taught as a Baptist, if you're saved, you ought to be able to tell it. 
Even the Baptists that believe once saved, always saved, they have their kind of little doctrinal nuances where they skirt why someone might be saved. And I heard one of my pastor friends say, well, if they're saved, I can't tell. That's a polite way of saying either they lost their salvation or they never got saved to begin with or made one of the worst church members I've ever had. But some of you, if you're saved, I'm not real sure of it. Now, thankfully for you, we're Pentecostals. And you've probably been baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And you can't pray in tongues without the Holy Ghost. So if you can still hikamoshandai, well, we might be able to squeak some salvation out of that soul of yours. <laughs> but I want to know how in the world you can pray in tongues and not come to church faithfully. Something about the Holy Spirit on the inside of you ought to be compelling you to be in the house of God, to be redocked on that docking station called the local church. I don't get it. Who, like Paul said to the Galatians, you guys are stupid. Who bewitched you? Who talked you out of this? You did run well. Who did hinder you? Amen. Let's come back to our first love and our first faith and get reapplied and reasserted and, and recharged in the things of God and be sold out again. The darkness of the world is increasing, and it's sucking the heat out of us faster than ever before. And you might be able to take a little bit of heat suck, but if you don't come warm yourself by the fires of God, you'll be ice cold before you realize it. It used to, you could backslide for a couple weeks and pull out of it, maybe even a couple months, maybe a year. You can't do that anymore. You backslide in between services, you might just hook the wrong thing and be gone forever. That's the day we're living in. That's why we don't play with sin. We don't flirt with sin. We don't flirt with people on Instagram, Facebook, or whatever. We come back to the house of God, and we reset, and we reset. Some of you still have not established church attendance as a habit. It's still just something you maybe occasionally do. This is not a hobby. This is our lifestyle. It's easy to fall out of habit if you're not careful. Verse 10, in contrast to verse 9, we're not saved by works. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. So we didn't work salvation. Salvation worked in us. We didn't work to get saved. God worked in us to save us. We're his workmanship. We're his craftsmanship. Our salvation is his work in our life when we cried out by grace through faith and said, God, save me a sinner. But Paul makes a strong distinction. Salvation's not our workmanship. Salvation is his workmanship and we have become the masterpiece now. Not that we're perfect, but you understand he wrought a salvation in us. But look, verse 10 is what I'm going to focus on this morning. We'll jump around a little bit. Now that we're his workmanship, it's for a purpose. Now, not that purpose-driven purpose -driven stuff that that heretic Rick Warren put out to the body of Christ. You know, all that New Age mumbo-jumbo the Southern Baptists were smart enough to reject? Hopefully. You know, Rick Warren, the New Age heretic. And his purpose-driven church, his purpose-driven life, with all of its new age mumbo-jumbo that he admitted to inserting. Not that kind of purpose. We have been saved to do something, and it isn't to chase the American dream. It isn't, we're not been born again to command God to bless our little wish upon a star, and I believe I receive my blessing in Jesus' name. Not that TBN hogwash that made those guys filthy rich while they were whoremongers at the same time. No, no, we're talking about the, the purpose of Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are his workmanship created unto good works. He has saved us that we might walk in the things he's predestined. Now, I'm not here to debate Calvinism versus Arminianism, but the, if you want to view it this way, there's a destiny for all of us, foreordained, and it's up to us whether we put our train on those tracks or not. 
And if you'll put your train on that destiny that God has foreordained for you, your life will be what it was meant to be. Not everybody finds those tracks. Not everybody puts their train there. You can get saved like some of you and keep doing your own thing. That violates verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The whole reason we're left on planet earth after we've been born again is to find this lifestyle, this destiny of good works, and that's not Johnny Do-Goodism. That is a destiny of work for the kingdom. There's a purpose for you. There's a gifting and a grace in you to sit in a certain place and to do a certain thing till the Lord returns. There's assignments. It's like the military. It's one of the allegories of the New Testament. We're not just sheep. We're not just body parts. We're not just part of the kingdom. We are also soldiers. And every soldier is given a, a training. And he's given a specialty. And that's his role no matter where he's assigned in the battalion, the platoon, or the country, or the continent, or the Ford operating base. He is a surgeon, or he's a special ops, or he's a pilot. He has a certain set of skills. And in the new birth, we've been given those. And you're to find out what they are and begin to exercise and manifest and demonstrate them where God assigns you, not where your boss decides to relocate you. The American dream says, go to college. The American dream says, have two kids and a dog. The American dream says, you select where you go to college. You select what you get your degree in. You select who you marry. You select how many kids you have. That's the American dream. God says, his will be done. Lord, would you have me go to college? Lord, if you would, where would it go be? Where would I go to college? Lord, what would you have me to major in? Lord, I like that girl. Would you have me to court her? No. Lord, who would you have me to court? Because you said it's not good that I'm alone, and I'm pretty alone right now. Lord, how many children would you like to give me? And by the way, you should only have as many kids as you can both parent and do justice by. And if you are allowing your older kids to raise your younger kids, you're a horrible parent. It's not fair to those babies that their siblings raise them. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before prepared or predestined or ordained that we should walk in them. So what happens if you don't walk in them? What happens if you don't walk out your destiny? What happens if you choose to chase the American dream? 2.5 kids and a Brittany Pooh, Pekingese, Pikachu, You know, we're just making up breeds now because they're fun and we want Instagram likes. <laughs> what happens if you don't walk it out? What happens if you chase the American dream? You don't finish your race. If you don't finish your race, you don't have the rewards you should have. You, you keep chasing the American dream too far, you may not even make heaven because you're not pursuing him. You're pursuing what you want. And because of 50 years of word of faith doctrine and 40 years of TBN, we've learned how to command God to bless because he has to bless anything I ask him to bless in Jesus' name. So we're so deluded and deceived, we think we can chase the college we want, chase the field we want, chase the career we want, and command God's blessing upon it. And that's not how this kingdom works. We, if we're truly servants, if we're truly his children, if we're truly his soldiers, we submit to him in every aspect of our life. And we ask him, Lord, what would you have me to do here? Lord, what would you have me to do here? Lord, what would you have me to do here? Lord, where, where would, you ha would you have me take this career? Lord, would you have me receive this promotion? Lord, would you have me to marry this girl? Lord, we're really thinking about, do you want us to have four children, Lord? We're thinking about it, Lord. What would you have us to do? This is how you begin to fulfill the good works God has given you. One thing is for sure, when you chase the American dream, you're pre-programmed to be carnal, and you won't find the will of God. Our whole culture has taught us to answer the question, what do you want? 
we should be asking, Lord, what do you want? God doesn't care about our dreams. We have a whole generation now, they want to grow up. Their dream is to be a social media influencer. Our president, he just met with TikTok stars to explain Ukraine to them to help get the message out. Are they going to create a new dance that kind of pantomimes the Ukraine-Russia conflict? What kind of administration plays games with children? Seriously, that just happened this week. We have a whole generation of people, their dream is to be a social media influencer. God doesn't care about your dream. He said, Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a plan. So at every intersection, we should stop and say, Lord, what's your plan? Every decision, Lord, what's your plan? Because he said it's a plan for prosperity and peace. No harm, no ill will. A plan to take care of you, a good and expected end. That sounds like a pretty good plan. Your American dream is weird, perverse. Some of you, you birthed it in the 50s, 1850s, because some of you were that old. Some of you birthed it in the 70s and the 80s. I, God have mercy on our kids birthing their dream in the double aughts, in the 20s. You're birthing your dream now? Oh, Lord of mercy. Is it going to have an acronym to it? It's your dream to re-identify your gender and your plumbing? Is it another nose stud and some purple hair streaks? Is there some other hole you want to pierce? Is that your dream? Come on. God has a plan and it's full of peace, love, joy, protection, value, anointing. It's what the world's trying to get without having God. We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ for a purpose and that is a purpose of good works these good works for us were prepared in advance. This is truly what our destiny is, a predetermined destiny. The tracks have already been laid out, and we choose to live for God by getting on those tracks. That's why you have to pray and teach your kids to pray, Lord, I thank you that I find your plan and destiny for my life. You need to teach your kids, sweetie, we need to pray whether God even wants you to go to college. A lot of Christians go to college, they don't survive it. They come out lesbian. They come out homosexual. They didn't go in there that way. That demon got on them. You're not born a homosexual. You're not born transgender. It's a demon. I've cast that demon out of people before. I've smelled the demon many times. It's a spirit. You weren't raised with it. You go to college and you hang out with it. If your kids aren't called to go to college, you don't send them. Because you're going to end up paying for them to be indoctrinated to reject your Savior. So you got to figure out what's the plan of God for your kid's life. What's the plan of God for your life? And then you walk in it. You have to figure out what that is, and then you pursue it and, and, and pace after it, and you get up every morning saying, Lord, keep me in the perfect center of your will. I'm convinced a lot of Christians won't finish their race because they don't even want to make a sacrifice of coming to church an extra service a week. This thing is getting harder and harder. The, body, the, the kingdom is not an easy kingdom to be a part of. Remember, Jesus Christ said, wide is the gate. And he, he said, many will seek it. That's why we're not a seeker church, because seekers don't find it. He said in Luke, strive to enter therein. And the word strive is a military combatant term, which means aggression and warfare. You strive to enter into that narrow gate. And if there isn't any striving in your Christian walk, I'm not really sure you're going to finish your race. Are you even looking for the right path? 
This is what we're ordained to do. There's a predetermined destiny for us that we have to find that thing and walk it out. You can't live for God on your own terms. Maybe write that down. You can't live for God on your own terms. You can't live for God on your own terms. That's called carnality. That's called living for self. You don't live for God on your own terms. We don't walk with him as we see fit. We walk with him as he sees fit. Even as a pastor in the ministry, there are still things I have to submit to him. I have had to <laughs> cancel many missionary trips, some of them while I'm in another airport in another city because I was out of the will of God. And you would think, well, you mean a missionary trip's out of the will of God? Absolutely. So this thing doesn't even end when you find the perfect vein you're in as a church. You know, you can pastor the wrong church. Yes. You can be the wrong minister. Amen. If I'm a pastor, but I, I, I determine I want to be an evangelist, I become a false evangelist. Amen. If I'm an evangelist, but I want to be a pastor because I think it's going to be easier, I become a false pastor. If I'm a pastor, but I want to be a prophet, but I'm not called to be a prophet, I'll become a false prophet. I can be pretend to be an apostle and end up becoming a false apostle. Meanwhile, I'm trying to serve God, but I'm serving God on my terms. And that's why we just say, Lord, whatever you want me to be. Not my will, your will be done. Not my life, your life live through me. This is really hard for Americans because we've been taught to pursue everything that tickles our fancy. And we can get it to us tomorrow with second day air from Amazon. Our job is to say, Lord, whatever you want. <laughs> the body of Christ got so obsessed with putting on the armor of God every day. I was talking to one guy. He just called me, actually a former church member. He'd had a couple dreams lately, so he wanted me to interpret them for him. He just called me about two weeks ago. I said, man, great to hear you. Sounds like you're doing great. I got some dreams. Can you interpret them? And I, we don't do that. I don't do dream interpretation. Number one, I'm not a Cherokee Indian. I am 152nd third Cherokee through my grandfather's, my mama's side. <laughs> That's why I get so dark in the summer. That, I probably got a little bit of African in me. I don't know if that offends you. Quit worshiping your favorite color. And I'm not a shaman. We don't do dream interpretation. That's new age mumbo jumbo. If God gave you the dream, he'll give you the interpretation. So he was asking me the interpretation of it. I said, man, I don't know. Here's what you do. You pray and seek God. And... Uh, and, and he'll show you what it means, because if he can't give you the interpretation, he probably didn't give you the dream. Plus, we have a more sure word of prophecy. All right, that sounds like a good idea. Pastor, I just want to tell you, I love getting up every morning. He's told me this, putting on the armor of God. I said, that's great. Why'd you take it off last night? He laughed. <laughs> I said, I'm serious. I mean, it, like we know it's like metaphorical, so it's not like leaving it on is going to disrupt your sleep and you're going to sweat in that armor. How about we introduce a new concept? How about we start getting up every morning and crucifying ourselves? And don't come off the cross when you go to bed. I mean, just sleep. You know, but wake up and just rededicate your life. Lord, my life is not my own. Whatever you want me to do today, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to say today, I'll say it. Enough of the armor. Thank God for it. But how about we get up and reallocate crucifixion? Because Jesus said, if you don't, you're not worthy of me. Got a lot of Christians aren't worthy of Christ because they still live for themselves. 
So we don't serve God on our own terms. We serve God on his terms. And basically from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, we won't cover that this morning because we won't have time. Paul goes on to make the argument why we live for God on his terms. Because he starts off by saying, remember, you were Gentiles going to hell. That's why we don't serve God on our own terms. We remember what we were, and if we can remember that, we'll wake up every morning and say, my God, my life is not my own. Whatever you want, I'm just happy to be alive another day, happy to be saved another day. Hey, you know what, Lord, you've been pretty good to me so far. You make really good decisions, Lord. This is a pretty good life I'm living. Why would I hop off your life for the American dream? So Lord, Paul has to take 11 verses to remind the Gentiles, y'all were losers going to hell outside the commonwealth of Israel, a devoid of the promises. You were going to hell, but now through the blood of Christ, he has made you one. But he still comes back and says, um, you better find out what that lifestyle of good works is and get your little train. They didn't have trains back then, if you didn't know, but get your little train on those tracks and better think you can, think you can as hard as you can and finish your race for Christ. Otherwise, you're going to take those tracks off the your tracks off the dead end bridge somewhere into the abyss. I'm saved. Now we'll see if we see you in heaven. We need to make sure we are living for God on his terms. It's possible to serve God in the wrong place. A lot of folks should be at this church. They're not here. Anytime we find folks that don't belong here, we try to send them where they go. Every visitor I get to fellowship with, I say, listen, I know most of the pastors in town, if we're not the church for you, I can point you in the right direction. What are you used to? And I can tell you the guys in town that are clean, because not every guy in town is. And I can tell you the flavor that what you're from that you might be interested in and who the clean version of that is in this town. And I try to get them where they belong, because if you don't belong here, I don't want you here. I need you where you're supposed to be. It's possible to serve God in the wrong place, and that doesn't benefit much. It's possible to serve God the wrong way, but in the right place. We do that all the time. We're in the right place where we're called to be, but we have an attitude. Your attitude makes everything you do wrong. So you can be in the right place, but doing the wrong thing. We want to make sure we get it the right place and the right way. Just like a job, you can stock shelves the right way, but be at the wrong grocery store. And the guy at Aldi says, what are you doing here? That's a Kroger uniform. That's across the street. And some Christians are just that stupid. They want to serve God. I want to serve God. Yeah, but this is not where you belong. You know, visitors come in and they want to take over the church. I'm like, hmm, that's not how this works. I don't even know who you are. And if you hadn't noticed, everybody here has been here longer than you. So get in the back of the line there, princess. It's always women that want to do this, that kind of charismatic Jezebel type. The one God never talks to? That one. <laughs> we had this one show up a couple years ago. It's been a long time ago now. You're always real cautious. I think before there was ever a Karen, there was a Pentecostal prophetess. I think she's the prototype for the Karens. They're all post-feminist half-lesbos, you know. So this prototype Karen shows up, and she's all charismatic and, you know, spiritual, and she's prophesying to our ladies in the parking lot, which our ladies know, you don't, don't let anybody do that, especially if you don't even know who their name is. And, and she's not church mama. Just tell her to go away. And uh, so we are watching her. She is the type that kind of hovers in the back corners. And she called me one day at the church. So that's back when we still had landlines, now that you know how old this was. For those of you that don't know what landlines are, 
this is where a phone actually has a cable that comes out of the wall. And then that cable actually went into the wall and went underground and would have a telephone pole. They're called telephone poles because it's how telephone communication used to work. Now, for those of you that are like under 20, these poles you see outside, they used to carry more than electricity. They used to carry communications. That's why they're called telephone poles. And now you know, and knowing is half the battle. So we used to have landlines, and they had these big deck, they had these buttons, and line one would flash, and Ginger would come on and say, you got a phone call, line one, all right, I'll pick it up, hit the button. So this, uh, you know, prototype Karen, charismatic, you know, when they say, thus says the Lord, you're supposed to just stop everything and redirect your whole life in ministry for some total stranger. Always a white woman. Always. Always a little heavy set, because she's still practicing the control thing on her spoon addiction. And she said... Uh, she starts telling me all blah, 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 blah. And I said, ma'am, ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't know you. I've seen you in the back of the church a couple of services. What can I do to help you? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. She said, no, no, it's not what you can do for me. I'm here to help you. And I said, well, let me tell you something real clear, ma'am. I already have a pastor. His name is not you. And I understand you're a total mess, which is why you're like a church tramp and hop from church to church. So you're never going to help me because you have nothing to offer me. And she said, well, I have never been spoken to before, like this before. I said, well, it feels good, doesn't it? And I hung up on her. And she never called back, and she never came back. I was delivered from the first Karen in history. Huh. It's better than having a horse stomper to death like Jezebel, right? Even her slave servants didn't like Jezebel. Elihu said, who's with me? Toss her out. And they just went, kicked her out the window. And she went splat, and Elihu's horse just stopped all over her. And then he said, if you know the story, who's hungry? Let's go get lunch. And they walked off to go get lunch. This is in your Bible. When they came back, all they could find was her head and her hands. The dogs had eaten the rest of her. That's what the Lord thinks of prophetesses, falsely so-called. They're dog dung. It's about as valuable as their prophecies anyway. Back to Ephesians 2. It's possible to serve God the wrong way, but in the right place. Jesus said, people will even kill Christians and think they're serving God. So they're serving God the wrong way in the wrong place. But it's possible to be that deluded. You actually kill a Christian like Paul was doing and thought you did God a service. How many things are we doing for God that we think we're doing him a service, but it's not accurate? And that's why we have to have help. That's why we have to have ministers in our life and disciples because we can have good intentions but be totally wrong at the same time. So one of the things I realized, jump over to Ephesians chapter 4. How, how do you serve God? How do you find this lifestyle of ordained good works? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the five ministry gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church. Tonight's service God willing, and he doesn't change anything. We're going to begin um, a season of teaching. I probably need to turn it into a curriculum for pod school, but we're going to start a season of teaching where we look more closely at the seven grace gifts of Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 12, comparing those with the five demata or doma gifts of Ephesians 4, and then we'll cross compare those to the nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, because you have gifts of the Father, 
gifts of the Son, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they all apply differently, and they all have different rules. There is some overlap, but by the fact that they're overlapping lets us know it's not the same thing. Just like you have a grace gift in Romans 12 for teaching, but you also have a ministry gift called the teacher, they're not the same thing. And because you have a grace gift called prophecy and a gift of the Spirit called prophecy, they're not the same thing. So we have to be able to explain those differences there. And just because you prophesy once doesn't make you a prophet. That shows up in Revelation, uh, in, in um, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. But we know this famous passage that there's four uh, or five ministry gifts in Ephesians 4.11. Look at verse 11. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now here's the reason why these five gifts are given because this ties in to Ephesians 2. We have to find that lifestyle of four ordained good works. You can't necessarily find it on your own. Why are we given these five ministry gifts? For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry. Please hear that every one of you has a calling to the local ministry. Now, it doesn't mean a full-time ministry like me, where you live by the, the paycheck, your paycheck's by the altar, and this is what you do full-time. But every Christian has a work for the ministry, ministry of helps. And actually, the ministry work you do is tied to Romans 12, those seven grace gifts that talk about prophecy and exhortation and teaching and ruling and mercy and giving. These gifts, every one of you, we kind of covered it last week, you are going to excel at one grace or another. The others can be developed, but somehow in the new birth, we're all given one of those seven that we just have it. We're just good at it. Whether it's teaching, we're just good at it. That doesn't make us a teacher, like a ministry gift, but we're just good at it. Or exhortation. Some folks are just good exhorters. They're just really good at it. Barnabas was called the son of consolation. He was a good exhorter. He could see the positive in everything, even the quitter, John Mark. And that, he couldn't temper that gift, and it split Barnabas and Paul on their second missionary journey because all Barnabas could see was the good in it. And Paul, the, the prophet teacher, realized this guy's going to betray us again. Every one of you has some kind of grace gift in you, but you have to have a pastor and an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, teacher in your life to figure out how to work that thing for the work of the ministry. We can no longer have spectatorship Christianity. And America has developed spectatorship Christianity. Our culture is defined by entertainment. Now, the world's always had entertainment. They got plays and theaters that go all the way back to 2000 BC and before that. Uh, you have the Epic of Gilgamesh. You had novels being written thousands of years ago, but we seem to have made an industry out of it. And I make this argument in one of the books I wrote. Have you noticed that here we are this morning and our chairs are in an arc? And we have stage lighting. And if you're a pagan, this is a stage or a platform. It's not the pulpit. And here I am a speaker and you're, you're just sitting there all eyes on me listening. And it's real easy to trip your little soul over into dinner theater, especially if I serve you coffee and a honey bun in the foyer. I keep talking about nacho bars and Josh gets hungry over here. He's like, nacho bar. One of my friends down in Florida, his son is a pastor on staff at a 10, 20,000 member church. And he said, you know, they got a full delicatessen in the foyer. And he said, and the horrible thing is, in the bleacher section, which is a, uh, the um, upstairs of it, 
He said, people come and go the whole service like it's a game. And they come and they get their honey bun or Cinnabon and they sit down. And he said, and if you're older like me and you, you got prostate issues, you drink that coffee, you're up and down three or four times to go use the bathroom. And he said, and so you can't even focus on the worship or the preaching because people are coming and going the whole time. That's not church. That's an abomination. That's the American culture steering the church thinking that if we build it, they will come. Well, no, if we build it with a coffee bar and a Cinnabon and a nacho bar, maybe they'll come, but will they get anything? And they don't. So here we are. We have the perfect formula for entertainment. And if you're not careful, you think your job is just to come. I'm the entertainer. Maybe I'm the TED talker, even though I'm preaching at you. You paid your admission. That's your tithe. You take notes. That's your product. That's what you service. And you don't ever come and contribute anything except for a bum in the chair and an offering in the bucket. But that's not how this works. So we have to reject this notion and realize all of us called in the body of Christ, we have a job. This is the foreordained ministry we're called to. The four, not this church, but you have a work to do. The foreordained good work that you were created to do. And you have to figure out what that is. The pastor's job is to help you figure it out. We bring in guest ministers because they talk about what they're doing. And typically, if you'll listen, something they say will cause it to rise up on the inside of you. And you'll say, oh, man, they've got an orphanage. Oh, those kids. And the mercy gift activates in your life. And the rest of us are like, orphanage? Man, my household's full of orphans. I'm about to make them orphans. I can't stand these kids. And you made all of them yourself. You got no mercy gift. <laughs> but we bring in all the ministry gifts so you can begin to recognize what's in you. The apostle leaves, the prophet leaves, the evangelist goes on to the next church. I'm left helping you figure out what it was you experienced in that last service so we can get you plugged in to the body of Christ because we need that gifting in you. Now let's keep reading here. For the perfecting of the saints, the equipping, the maturing, the furnishing, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the guest minister or the ministry gift comes in and they tell a story, they preach a sermon, and it's supposed to help you realize what's in you. Or maybe even the preaching puts it in you if it were activated, however you want to view it, I don't care. And then what that does is you realize that's what you've been given as a tremendous grace to help build the body of Christ. No Christian is called to be a spectator. No Christian has permission from God to show up a little bit late and leave a little bit early. If you're not in the ministry of helps, you're out of the will of God. And you're quickly becoming a parasite on this local body. Anybody like a welfare Christian? Anybody like a welfare person? Anybody like a big old fat deer tick hanging off you after you've been backpacking deer hunting or cutting the grass? No, well, some Christians are that to the body of Christ. Big old fat yogurt-covered raisin deer tick just leeching life out of the rest of us. And you can always tell because if you grab them too tight, they inject venom, then they let go and crawl away real slow. No. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you do. They're fun to pull off the back of, you know, farm dogs and they crawl real slow, look like a yogurt covered raisin because they're all swollen with blood about the size of your thumbnail. And then you step on them. It doesn't kill them because that's just like their blood sack. They just keep crawling away. I, uh, years ago, I was sharing a computer. This is when you had to share computers because you didn't have a smartphone. We didn't even have phones. Did you know I went through college without a phone? And I turned out real nice. Just perfect. Huh. I was sharing a computer with this guy named Mark. He's still local. He's still nearby. 
and we had to share, so we had to schedule our usage of it. And I came in right after he did. He did landscaping. And I came in, and we had those Formica desktops. He had pulled a tick off of him and, and stuck it to the desk with the straight needle. And it was left right there. And I just watched that guy just try to crawl the whole time I worked on our computer. There's a little tick with his needle through him. Apparently, Mark didn't appreciate deer tick on him either. But if you're here and you don't serve, I consider you a tick. Taking and never giving. Now, maybe you've never heard this kind of teaching before, but that's why we're giving it to you. We are edifying, equipping you so that you can now begin to do the work of the ministry. Yeah, because that ought to be a beautiful exchange. You don't just take, you also give. Amen. We want this to be a symbiotic relationship and not a parasitic one. I like the symbiosis of that bird that lives in the crocodile's mouth. And the bird gets free meals and the crocodile gets free dental care. And the crocodile could eat and get a free chicken, uh, but he's going to lose his care, dental care package. So they just have this mutual understanding. I take care of you, you take care of me. You hang out in my mouth, nothing will mess with you. You get a free food, I get free dental care. And if you get hungry, let me know. I'll go eat something else. That's how it ought to be. Amen. I think it's a beautiful picture from biology. Or I'm a cow and you're a tick. Pretty nasty. A lot of churches, these big seeker ones. You ever seen a, a, a tick infestation on an animal? Just hundreds of them all swollen on the back where the dog can't get to or where the cow or the deer can't get to. A lot of churches, they have a tick infestation. They're called spectators. Contribute very little to the body of Christ, hardly even an offering, but they pad the insecure pastor's numbers. He'll tell you, I've got a thousand members. He won't admit that 400 of them are ticks. A good preacher will use a sermon to pull those ticks off and run them off. Amen. All right. So, work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's jump down here. Verse 15, ah, let's just keep reading. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children. We need to grow up so that we're no more childish. Childish people get offended easily. Childish people sulk. Childish people withdraw. Childish people refuse to have fellowship one with another. This is why we have ministers in our life to tell us to grow up. I tell my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old and my 4-year-old, get a hold of your emotions and grow up. And I do it to 44-year-olds too. Get a hold of your emotions and grow up. That we henceforth be no more childlike, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Notice there's lots of winds of doctrine out there. It doesn't even say false doctrine. It just says winds of doctrine. You need a pastor so you can be stable. But speaking the truth in love, now the truth in love doesn't mean it always feels good. We've been lied to by psychologists, Oprah, and weak-kneed pastors that love always feels good. Love doesn't always feel good. I spank my children because I love them. Every swat is love. The Bible says if you spare the rod, you hate your kids. So sometimes hate feels good. Better is this open rebuke than a secret love. So let's not confuse what speaking the truth in love looks like. It doesn't mean I'm not mad. Sometimes the leader needs to be mad. Mom and dad have every right to be mad. Leaders get, have every right to be mad. Woe to the person that makes them mad. When I used to 
when I used to upset and anger my Muslim boss, that hurt me. I wasn't offended at him. I said, Lord, how do I keep failing this man? He's a pagan. He's going to hell. He mocks my God. He's a great boss, but boy, I've upset him again. What am I doing to fail him? I never blamed him, called him, said he had anger management issues. Where's it my problem? He pays my paycheck. He's made something out of this young geologist. I owe him something and I keep failing him and he is mad. And you know, his anger caused my heart to say, I ain't never doing that again. His anger, those, those blow-ups where he would cuss me and cuss my existence, I'm going to fire you. If I come to town again and it's like this, you're getting fired. That caused me to grow rapidly. And if we're always hugging and kissing on people, they're not going to grow. They're going to exploit us. So let's be mindful of this. Speaking the truth in love may grow up. If you don't speak the truth, things don't grow up. Sometimes the truth of the matter is you're failing. Sometimes the truth of the matter is you're weird. Sometimes the truth of the matter is you need to stop what you're doing. Sometimes the truth of the matter is, man, that's awesome. Keep doing it. Why do we get offended at truth? Truth is truth. If you will honor truth, it'll never offend you, no matter how it's served to you. If you love truth, let a dog bark it at you. You'll receive it. If you love truth, let your enemy declare it to you. You'll receive it. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, verse 16. And then I'm going to have them throw it up on the NLT in a moment. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. That word compacted means forced to work together. Isn't that how the body of Christ works? We are forced to work together. (laughs) Uh, Compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's a mouthful, and that's King James. New Living Translation says it the best. Let's throw this up here, um, and I'll read it to you. New Living Translation, Ephesians 2.16. It says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. That's you and I, members in particular. As each part does its own special work. That special work is based on the Romans 12 grace gifts. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That is a wonderful synopsis of that verse and this concept we're talking about. Jesus Christ makes the whole body fitly, or our body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So here's the obvious question we got to ask. What happens if a part doesn't do their job? What happens if a part doesn't discover their grace? What if a part finds their grace, but they don't like that grace? They want to, they want to be a different grace. What happens if any part fails to do what it's called to do? What happens if you get up in the morning and your left arm says, I don't want to do anything today? What happens if you get up in the morning and your left foot says, I don't really want to work at full capacity today. I'm just going to kind of gimp around. You're going to notice it, and so will everybody else. What happens if your left eye, you get up in the morning, your left eye says, I'm thinking we're going to go, not 2020, I'm thinking like 2190. Just feels like a good number. (laughs) What does that do? All of a sudden, everything your body was going to do gets reallocated towards what's wrong with the left leg, what's wrong with the right ear, what's wrong with my right side of my jaw. Everything you had planned gets scrapped because we have to focus on the member that decided to be a Johnny no-show. 
Now, that's us at times. We skip. We show up late. We don't show up at all. We don't bother to call anybody. Or we just want to be parasites, and we just want to come and enjoy what everybody else's work to build. Oh, I love the preaching. It really stomps all over me. Well, I'm not stomping hard enough, apparently, if you're still a parasite. Or we get offended, so we withdraw from the parts we're supposed to be a blessing to. This is how the kingdom is supposed to work if we'll allow it to work in us. If every local church could fulfill verse 16, the world would not be in the issue or the condition that it is in today. You guys know I constantly harp on the American church because it's what I represent. But most American pastors won't even try to work this in their own church. They want to collect people, not disciple them. It's a lot easier to draw people than to make something out of them. So easy to draw people. I know the perfect formula. I could double the size of our church by the end of the year if I was willing to slowly deny Christ. I know how to make this church bigger, dial back tongues, dial back our protocol, dial back our honor, dial back our excellence, shorten the messages, turn the lights down low, let my worship team dress up like a bunch of whores and weirdos. Serve coffee. Have a cool name over the bar. Give me some nachos in that foyer. All you can eat pump that cheese. I anoint these nachos with the cheese of gladness. Yeah, we serve you jalapenos. You guys will be bringing in a glory cloud in the back of the service. It'll be Pentecost, all Pentecostomy, what it'll be. It'll be all <laughs> mighty rushing wind. I want to know why God doesn't show up in their services anymore because you're carnal that's why pastor you're carnal but we don't do that this is what we're called to do my job is to disciple every one of you which is hard because there's like 200 plus of you so we're trying to set other things in place where you're learning how to pray with your care deacons and you're going to learn how to give your testimony with your care deacons you're going to learn to serve in the ministry of helps because This church will be stronger as all of you get stronger. When all of you figure out what that grace is and rejoice that that's the grace God gave you, and you begin to flex that grace muscle, whether it's prophecy or exhortation or giving or hospitality or mercy, whether it's teaching, whether it's whatever the things God given you, if you'll do it, it'll make increase of this local church to where, as, as Ephesians says there in the New Living Translation, we grow up, the whole body is healthy, and growing and full of love. Healthy and growing. That's what we want. That's what God wants. Who cares if we ever see 500 people? I'm not in this for the numbers. No, man, that's a, that's a politician's game. We'll never be able to compete with the world's numbers anyway. Hell's going to be full. Probably more people in hell than there'll be in heaven. Remember, Jesus Christ ministered with the fullness of God for three and a half years and had 120 in his first service. And he appeared to almost 500 before he ascended, and still only a quarter of them showed up. I mean, what does it take to get people into church? If Jesus Christ can't do it, why would I dumb down the standard and look like America? So we're kind of an enigma here, because the harder I preach and the higher I raise the standard, the more the church grows. And I dig it, because I don't know how to turn the thing off now. I couldn't come down from the standard if I wanted to. And like Schmidt, says, Pastor, no offense, but you're just a man trying for God's standard. So how inadequate are you compared to what Jesus really wants? 
And folks have trouble with me trying to raise a standard that's aiming for Christ. So, you know, it's like public school. You lower the standard, more people pass. That's like the secret church. You lower the standard, more people come. And we're not going to be that way. Yeah. So he says, we want to be this. We want to be this body that's fitly joined together, made to fit together perfectly. And each one of us, church, each one of us has a special work. You guys, all of you have gifts and talents I do not have. You have graces I do not have. You have abilities I do not have. And you guys make this church what it needs to be. Now, I pastor you. I teach you. I can pinpoint that grace. I can do sermons and teaching series and training that helps develop it. But you have to make the choice to find that grace and then use it for the kingdom. You can turn it on or off. It's your grace. God gave it to you. It's not like a gift of the Spirit that's sovereign. And if the tongues aren't working, I don't work them. If miracles aren't working, I can't work it. If discerning of spirits isn't in operation, I can't see anything. It's not how your grace is. Your grace, you can turn it on or turn it off. You can skip church and stay home, or you can come and be full of joy and manifested. If you'll find out what that grace is, and that's why I'm going to teach on the next couple Sunday nights, asking for God to show every one of us what that thing is, that if you'll chase after the Lord Jesus in that grace, it will develop and it'll cause the church to come up. It'll cause the church to grow stronger. It'll cause things to improve. And woe be to any Christian that figures out their grace and just sits on it. We don't do spectatorship here. That's for the other six days of the week when you're watching your movie or your sports game or your kids or whatever. That's not for the house of God. This service is training, but you guys know full well, while you're being trained here, people are on the other side of that wall working their grace and the parking lot working their grace. Or Kylie's about to work her grace as she leads us in worship. This is how the kingdom works. We should have a Maybe we'll put it on the website. In Grafted Word Church, here there be no parasites allowed. If you're looking for a parasitical church, may I recommend the following? And links, hyperlinks to their websites. We occasionally pick up a good deer tick like every good dog does. But that's also why we can spot them and pull them. I told you a couple weeks, uh, a couple years ago, it was in the spring. We'd been out caving. I came back from caving to lead prayer at noon. And I had picked several ticks off of me while I was out at the cave. But I'm leading prayer, and all of a sudden I get those phantom itches. And uh, so I'm leading prayer, and I find one, and there's a tick embedded in my arm. And I can't pull it off while I'm leading prayer, because what am I going to do with it? So you, you pastor it is what you do, like I do some of you. I just let the tick ride for a little bit, keep leading prayer, pacing back and forth, and then I get another phantom itch. That one's under the clothing. You're like, hmm. So now I can't hurry up and get through prayer. If there was nobody here, I'd have just shut prayer down and gone and checked it all out. But nope, nope, some of you had to show up and help me that day. So we get down, all right, love you guys, see ya. And I ran and I said, honey, so her office right there. I mean, I just stripped down. I said, you got to check me out. I, and we found two or three more ticks on me. Ooh. I think I made a total of 10 that day I pulled off of me. I feel like a pastoring story. It's like, can you imagine if I was a mega guy having hundreds of them on me? Ugh. 
nasty and bed their head, don't want to leave, don't want to do anything. And if you get a hold of them too tight, they'll inject venom into you, paralyze half your body. It's called gossip and slander. You can preach the gospel from any biological animal you want to because all of it reflects the kingdom. So today's sermon's called Don't Be a Parasite. Amen. We'll get some of that DIQUAT or DET or whatever. DEET. Let's take a bath in 100% DEET. We'll worry about the third generation later. We'll just get it on me now. <laughs> and kill those bugs if you know what DEET is. As in Kenya, one of my friends is a big hippie aromatherapy guy. And he believed in doing, you know, we're like in malaria belt. And he's wanting to fight mosquitoes with essential oil. <laughs> I said, Doc... Your medicine cabinet smells like a Grateful Dead concert. I'm not really sure you're going to do anything but draw the hippie mosquitoes to us. And he said, what do you got over there, brother? I said, 100% DEET. He said, man, that stuff's bad for you. So that's why I'm rubbing it in my feet. It just absorbs right there. And I didn't get any mosquito bites. And the next morning, uh, one of our team members who had been using the whole hippie therapy thing just covered in them. Uh, Her arm had 20 bites on one arm alone while you sleep. I said, nope. Better living through chemistry. (laughs) And all my kids turned out just fine. So uh, for now, anyway, they're doing just fine. (laughs) Let's bow our heads here and pray. I hope you learned something this morning. 